Welcome to Building the Machine, our new podcast series from Redleg Nation Radio. Over 12 episodes, we're bringing you the story of the Big Red Machine, Cincinnati's baseball dynasty that changed the game forever. Day by day, year by year, you're hearing how the machine was constructed, all the highs and the lows, and the legacy that remains. Each week, we're bringing you a new episode focusing on one single year from 1969 to 1979. If you didn't get to experience the Big Red Machine as they were dominating baseball, you're going to enjoy the chance to experience the story as if you were there and learn more about the names and events that were so important in shaping the narrative around the Cincinnati Reds. We're also going to include thoughts on what was different about baseball in this era, from salary negotiations to the way the game was played to the things that happened that made this team become what it became. If you were fortunate enough to watch the machine live, this will be a fun blast from the past. This is Episode 7. The Greatest World Series Ever Played. I'm Chad Dotson, and joining me now to discuss 1975, a high watermark for the Big Red Machine, is Bill Lack. How are you today, Bill? Very, very excited. Here we are again. And we're going to plan to discuss, but let's begin, as we usually do, with the news in pop culture and around the world. To give everyone kind of an understanding of where we are in history, in February of 1975, Johnny Bench married model Vicky Chesser. Now, now, Bill, tell me about this because this is this was a huge thing at the time, wasn't it? Oh yeah, it's the closest thing Cincinnati's ever had to like a royal wedding. I mean, the 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 people that were invited and that attended was was celebrities, politicians. You know, the, it was the who's who of Cincinnati. It was a royal wedding. It was Princess Di and 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 Prince Charles long before they were even a thought. And of course. Bench and uh, Vicky Chesser were separated in October and divorced before the end of the year. Moving on, the Vietnam War ended in 1975 with the fall of Saigon. U.S. President Gerald Ford survived two assassination attempts in one month. The first was by Manson family member Squeaky Frome. That was in Sacramento. And then the second time, Sarah Jane Moore in San Francisco. Bill Gates and Paul Allen founded Microsoft in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Space Mountain, Steel Roller Coaster, opened at Walt Disney World in Florida. Still one of the park's most popular attractions. What else happened in 75 in the news, Bill? And that's different than the Space Mountain that Ric Flair talks about. You're going to have to believe uh, Bill on that one. You're, you're not an old-time wrestling fan like I am, Chip. Watergate kind of started to come to a close. Uh, former Attorney General John Mitchell, the president, President Nixon's chief of staff, H.R. Haldeman and his top domestic advisor, John Ehrlichman, were found guilty of perjury, obstruction, and conspiracy. On June 30th, Jimmy Hoffa was reported missing. And in the middle of September, Patricia Hearst was finally captured in San Francisco. And if you remember last episode, we said she'd been kidnapped by the Symbionese Liberation Army in February of 74. And that, that Patricia Hearst thing is a whole long story all unto itself. If you're not familiar with it, go look it up. Absolutely. In movies, Jaws, Steven Spielberg's Jaws was released in theaters and that became a huge summer hit and it kind of set the standard from uh, that point forward. Hollywood felt like they had to have blockbusters in the summer every single year. A couple of uh, movies that I guess you would determine both these cult classics. Rocky Horror Picture Show was released in the United States. That was actually second on the year's box office list to Jaws and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show, Bill? I've never seen Rocky Horror Picture Show. I used to know people that went and saw it on the you know the late, the midnight Friday nights or Saturday nights or whatever that was, but never saw it myself. Now, Holy Grail is one of my favorites, though. Yeah, Monty Python and the Holy Grail released that year. Just a hilarious movie that I believe is available on Netflix if you have that particular service. Some other notable films that uh, are among my favorites that were released in 1975. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest at one Best Picture that year. Jack Nicholson. Dog Day Afternoon, starring Al Pacino, which is just an incredible, incredible film. Martin, an early Martin Scorsese picture, Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. And perhaps the uh, greatest p- movie ever from one of my favorite directors and, and an underrated director, Robert Altman, Nashville, was released in 1975. So what are some of your other favorites that were released in 75, Bill? Uh, the rock opera Tommy was released that year with a cast that included The Who, Elton John as the pinball wizard, Tina Turner as the Acid Queen also had Eric Clapton, Oliver Reed, and Aunt Margaret. And if you've never seen the movie, 
You'll never think of baked beans again after you see Anne Margaret and the baked beans. I have no idea what that means. I can't wait to see it. John Wayne released Rooster Cogburn that year. Not a superly great movie, but the interaction, the interplay between he and Catherine Hepburn is, is pretty good. Uh, Sunshine Boys, George Burns, Walter Matthau. And the very, very underrated Western, in my opinion, Bite the Bullet, came out that year. In music, Elton John had the first album ever to enter the U.S. Billboard 200 album chart at number one. And it was Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Queen released their uh, single, Bohemian Rhapsody, that uh, echoes still today. That was not a new song when Mike Myers used it in uh, Wayne's World. I thought it was at the time when it came out, and I, when I found out it wasn't, I was surprised because uh, it was great when it was released, and then it was a great uh, last year when the Queen movie was released uh, with that title. Peter Gabriel departed Genesis, and he was replaced on lead vocals by drummer Phil Collins. They did okay. They did all right with Phil Collins. The heavy metal band Iron Maiden is formed by Steve Harris in London, and the biggest hit single that year, Billy Swan's I Can Help. I have no idea what that is, Bill. I don't either. Maybe the strangest music marriage in history was that year. Cher and Greg Allman got married. <laughs> Nothing weird about that. Nothing at all, no. <laughs> uh, some other albums that were released that year. Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Fleetwood Mac, Fleetwood Mac, which was the first album after uh, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks joined the group. Led Zeppelin released Physical Graffiti. Aerosmith's classic Toys in the Attic, which had Walk This Way and Sweet Emotion on them. And the one I can't believe Chad hasn't mentioned, Bruce Springsteen's Born to Run was released that year. All I will say is I am not a certified, fully paid member of the Bruce Springsteen fan club. Let's talk television, Bill. The first episode of Saturday Night Live aired. George Carlin was the host of the first episode of Saturday Night Live, and it remains on the air today. Wheel of Fortune debuted on NBC. The Jeffersons had their debut as a spinoff of All in the Family. And uh, what are some other shows that premiered that year, Bill? Austin City Limits, Welcome Back Cotter, Beretta, and one of my favorites, Faulty Towers. Faulty Towers, BBC. And uh, some shows went off the air that year as well, huh? Yep. Gunsmoke after probably a 20-year run, I would think. The Odd Couple, which was a wonderful movie and a play, movie, and TV series. And uh, Mannix, which was a favorite of mine when I was a kid. Mike Connors as Mannix. <laughs> Excellent. In the sports world, Frank Robinson, a friend of uh, of Reds Nation, I guess, one of the greatest players in Cincinnati Reds history, became the first black manager in baseball. He was player manager for Cleveland. And, of course, later he also became the second black manager in baseball when he was hired by San Francisco. In his final game on the sidelines, John Wooden coached UCLA to its 10th national championship in 12 seasons when the UCLA Bruins defeated Kentucky 92-85 to in the title game. John Wooden was okay, huh? He had a little bit of success out there. Um, you know, and it all started when he taught them how to put on their socks. <laughs> That's what I hear. My favorite John Wooden story was the one with Bill Walton, when Walton decided he wasn't going to get his hair cut. And Coach Wooden said, well, you'll look really good sitting on the bench there, Bill. It was a different time, uh, certainly, <laughs> but uh, you can't uh, argue with Wooden's success at the University of California at Los Angeles. Golden State Warriors won the NBA Basketball Championship. Rick Barry was the MVP in a sweep over the Washington Bullets. Rick Barry of the underhanded free throws. Absolutely. Averaged more than 30 points a game that year. No one else on the team averaged more than 14. Bill, what else happened in sports? I know the next one's one that's uh, that you're partial to. Yeah. Muhammad Ali defeated, defended the world championship by defeating Joe Frazier in the thrill in Manila in the Philippines. And, and this was just on ESPN not, uh, the other day. And uh, I watched it again. What a fight. Wow, that was a great fight. And Bobby Fischer refused to play a, a chess match against Anatoly Karpov, giving Karpov the title of world champion of chess. Just as exciting as the thriller in Manila. Notable names who were born in 1975, Tiger Woods, actors Bradley Cooper, Charlize Theron, Drew Barrymore, Christina Hendricks from Mad Men, Angelina Jolie, and Kate Winslet. Soccer star David Beckham, baseball player Vladimir Guerrero, David Big Poppy Ortiz, and then musicians DJ Khaled and 50 Cent. And we also had some deaths that year, Bill. Yeah, we did. Uh, Rod Serling, who's best known for the, the Twilight Zone, who, who uh, passed away. He had actually started his writing career here in Cincinnati, writing for WLW. 
uh, blues performer T-Bone Walker passed away that year. Two of the three, three Stooges, Mo Howard and Larry Fine passed away that year. Three big names in baseball, Lefty Grove, Casey Stengel, and Nellie Fox all passed away. Okay, so we've set the scene a little bit. Let's talk about where we are going into 1975 from the Cincinnati Reds aspect. Now, if you've listened to every episode of the podcast, you know that we started out in 1969 with a really good season and Sparky arrives and the Reds win 100 games and go to the World Series in 1970, lose the World Series that year, and then a under 500 season in 71, 72, lose the World Series again in, in that magical Oakland A's series, 73, won 99 games but lost the National League Championship Series, and then 74 in our previous episode, won 98 games but finished in second place. So the Reds have uh, made the playoffs three times so far in this series, Building the Machine, have never been able to get over the hump. And at some point, as we mentioned in the last episode, people were starting to wonder, would this team ever get over that hump? Right, Bill? Yeah, I can definitely remember them them talking about, you know, can this team, is this team ever going to be able to win the big one? And that was a real question at this point. Again, that's part of the reason that we wanted to do this podcast uh, and, and name it Building the Machine because it's hard for us to realize in retrospect because this seems like uh, the dynasty, the dynasty in this town. And it was not the case back then. They were really good, but there were real, real questions about whether they were actually good enough. Now, Bob Housem, Red's general manager Bob Housem, and the front office had decided that they could not open 1975 with Dan Dreesen at third base, didn't they? Yeah, they did. He offensively, he'd had a pretty daggone good year for for his age and for his experience. He hit two eighty one, three forty seven, four hundred, and his his OPS plus was one hundred and ten. He had a you know a two overall uh, WAR, but his defense was just atrocious at third base. So so the Reds went into the offseason considering trading Tony Perez to move Dreesen to first base. Perez was thirty two, which is the age that offense usually starts to decline. And as we've talked about in past episodes, Bob Housen was a was a disciple of Branch Rickey, who, who believed that you're always better off trading a player too soon than too late. So they went into the season thinking about trading Perez. There were several names floated, and we need to preface this by saying that Tony Perez would not waive his 10-5 status. And what that is, if you've played 10 years in the majors and five years on a single team— you basically have a no-trade clause uh, worked into your contract. So, But he said he would consider a trade depending on where and what. Some of the names that were floated were Sal Bando from Oakland, Greg Nettles from New York, the Yankees, and George Brett, Kansas City. Uh, by the end of the general manager's meetings, uh, only Nettles' name was still on the table. Bob Housen wanted more than Greg Nettles for Tony Perez. He wanted a young pitcher also. The Yankees really did, couldn't, uh, couldn't consummate that deal. No replacement for Nettles there anyway. And so Perez stayed a red. But I think you're right about one thing, Bill, that you mentioned to me. That's a, one, another one of the big what-ifs in the, the big red machine history, right? Yeah. Two things that occurred to me here is One is, can you imagine if George Brett would have gotten traded to the Reds and playing third base on that team? Holy crap. Yeah, they would have been even better than they were. Absolutely. Yeah, but the, but the other thing is, what if they had traded Perez and they moved Reese to first base? You know, and for Nettles or, or Bando or, or somebody, you know, player X, uh, who, who would, you know, have to be a pretty good player to be, you know, to come for the price of Perez. And Dreesen moves to third base. Well, then we don't move Rose to third. That doesn't give Foster any place to blossom, you know, in the outfield. It's a, a big what if story. It is. And to play off that, you don't have Tony Perez in that lineup and the, all the red stars to a, to a man credited Tony Perez with being sort of the, the core of the team that uh, everyone looked up to. And uh, they always counted on him to get a big hit. And he got plenty of big hits in 75, 76. So Dreesen was a, was a fine player, but a lot of what-ifs there. The Reds uh, do hang on to Tony Perez, though. They are able to make one trade, though, for a third baseman. You want to tell us about that? They do make a move. They, they, they trade a former number one draft pick, Pat Osborne, to the Brewers, who were in the American League at the time, for a third baseman named John Vukovic. <laughs> and Vukovic was your was your prototypical all field no hit guy. He did played in the big leagues for ten years, and his slash line was one sixty one, two oh three, two twenty two. He had an OPS plus of twenty, and his career war was minus three point five. 
he must have been really good with the glove to stick around in the big leagues 10 years with that batting line. Absolutely. Absolutely. So they made this trade, and, and, and so he's a candidate for the third base job. And they went into spring training, and it, and it seems like it was kind of an open tryout at third base. Some of the guys, some of the contenders were Vukovic and, and Joe Youngblood, uh, Ray Knight, Doug Flynn, and Junior Kennedy. And, and Sparky would, would end up deciding on Vukovic, basically believing that, that the, the other you know, seven starters would bring him enough offense that they could carry a, a one position with uh, no bat at all. And that brought up the question, though, with Vukovic kind of winning that position, maybe by default, what do you do with, with Dan Dreesen, who Sparky had already determined could not handle the defensive duties at third. He was going to get some time spelling Perez at first base. He would maybe play some outfield, but the team already had five outfielders, uh, Pete Rose in left, uh, George Foster and Cesar Geronimo in center, Merv Rettenman and Ken Griffey in right. So what are you going to do with uh, with Dan Dreesen? That was a big question mark as you move into the 1975 season. Tell us about the rotation that year because a big name returns. Yeah, the rotation w- was getting back Gary Nolan. He, he was healthy after he got had a second surgery where they were, took a bone spur out that was piercing a muscle. You know, I guess that Sparky had to finally admit that that really wasn't all in Nolan's head. Nolan had pitched, I think, a game or two in 73 and not at all in 74. But he was back now and he was throwing easily. And he was going to team up with Don Gullett, Jack Billingham, Freddie Norman, and the newly acquired Clay Kirby in the rotation. And it looked like a pretty strong rotation going into the season. It looked like a pretty strong bullpen as well. Beginning of the year, Clay Carroll, Pedro Bourbon, Will McEnany, and Tom Hall, of course. Now, Tom Hall would end up being traded in April, only threw in two games. Uh, by his own admission, he'd lost confidence during that 1974 season. But when he was traded, this is in May, we're not up to May yet, but let's go ahead and, and say when he's traded, another kind of big point for the 1975 Reds because it strengthened that bullpen, didn't it? Yeah, they brought up a youngster. They brought up a Raleigh Eastwick at, towards the end of May. And even though he didn't come up till the end of May, he still saved 22 games that season. Not a bad rookie year. Now, this is one of my favorite things to talk about every single episode, Bill, because it's such a strange thing again to me, even though we've discussed it every episode. Tell us about the contract battles in spring training that year. One in particular was uh, was notable. Well, there were, there were a whole lot of them, again, going into that year, which you think is kind of strange coming off a year where you didn't didn't make the playoffs, uh, but they did win 98 games. But Gullett, Carroll, Billingham, Morgan, Perez, Foster, Bench, and Rose all had contract squabbles with the team in spring training. The worst was Rose, as it always is. It was the worst and and the loudest, apparently. The Reds offered him an 18% pay cut from his 74 contract of $155,000, which would have put him back down around $125,000 to $130,000. They told Pete, well, you're 33 years old. You didn't even hit 300 last year. Of course, it was the first time in 10 years he hadn't hit 300. He uh, he did hit 284 with a 385 on-base percentage and a 388 slugging. His OPS plus was 118, and his his wins over above replacement was 5.9. It's not like he had a bad year, but this is just the way baseball worked at the time. You didn't you know you didn't get automatic pay increases. So after this fight went on for a while, Rose ended up signing for basically the same amount that he played for in '74. And so we move on to the regular season now. Again, the Reds coming off a 99 and 98 win seasons, but seasons that ended prematurely one not even making the playoffs in 74 and then in 73 being knocked out early in the national championship series by the Mets the Reds really figured they could not afford a sluggish start they'd actually had sluggish starts in both the previous two seasons and the Reds wanted to get off to a better start especially considering that six of their first 10 games were versus the hated Dodgers who had knocked the Reds out uh, the previous season knocked the Reds down to second place opening day Don Gullett versus Don Sutton. And this was some kind of a pitcher's duel, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. Uh, Sutton went seven, allowed one run on five hits, struck out five. Gullett was even better. He, he went nine and two-thirds, allowed one run and five hits. He walked. He did walk five. Sutton was relieved by Mike Marshall, who throws five shutout innings. And the Reds' bullpen gives them a, a third from Clay Carroll and then two scoreless innings from Pedro Bourbon. Uh, before the, and, and then they went to Pat Darcy. In, in the 13th, Charlie Huff took over for the Dodgers and Darcy took over for the Reds. And they both 
were really good in the 13th inning, and Darcy got the Dodgers out in the 14th. And we go to the bottom of the 14th. In the bottom of the 14th, Concepcion singled to left, went to second on a pass ball. Geronimo walked, put runners on first and second. Griffey moved the runners up with a sacrifice bunt. Chaney grounds back to the pitcher, and Concepcion's nailed at the plate. So with two outs, Foster comes up, chops an infield single to third base, and Geronimo scores. And that's in the the Reds' win. I'll tell you how cold it was in Cincinnati that day. Sparky had three hibachi grills in the dugout for players to keep their hands warm. I love it. Maybe even uh, roast something on those. Uh, yeah, in, in middle of the sixth inning, you start getting hungry. So it was a good opening day win, and the Reds go on to actually sweep that opening series from the Dodgers at Riverfront Stadium. Game two, they won four to three, scored two runs in the bottom of the ninth off Mike Marshall, who would go on to win the Cy Young Award. And then uh, Dave Concepcion drove in the winning run there. And then game three, Seven to six win. Reds came back from a five to nothing deficit on the strength of two home runs from George Foster, and then uh, Clay Carroll and Pedro Borbon gave the Reds five innings of scoreless relief. So a big sweep to start the season, and the Reds are riding high. They're in high cotton, as Marty used to say. They go out to the West Coast and what? <coughs> they crash and burn. Lost six of seven to San Diego and Los Angeles, including four to the Dodgers. Uh, the one game they won was a pretty good one though, right? Yeah. In San Diego, uh, a gullet beats the Padres 10 to nothing, uh, which actually put the Reds up by half a game in the, in the division. He threw a, a nine, a two hitter shutout, didn't walk a batter and had six strikeouts. At that point, he'd lowered his ERA to 0.48. Yeah. That'll get it done. Now, what am I, Favorite stories, I guess. I don't know if I should say favorite, but one of the better stories of the 1975 season happens in the third game out in Los Angeles, and it's one that sort of reverberates throughout the Big Red Machine's history. Can you tell us about that, Bill? Yeah, in in the third game in in, in L.A., with the bases loaded in the third inning, Sparky decides to pinch hit for Vukovic and sends Dreesen up. Now, Vukovic's parents are in the stands, and he gets pinch hit for in the third inning. He was a little upset. So on the way back to the to the clubhouse, he broke all of the lights in the tunnel going back to the clubhouse. I can imagine. I think he was expressing his pleasure. I think he was expressing some displeasure there, Bill. Yes. So in the in the wake of that, Daryl Chaney and Doug Flynn shared the third base duties with Vukovic. Vukovic was actually hitting at that point. It was early in the season. He was hitting 294, 429, 471. As we've already told you, he was not a good hitter, as this was proved out throughout his entire career. So Sparky was not not wrong to pinch hit for him, even early in a game with his parents there. But after after April the 6th, Vukovic would only start five more games for the Reds, the last one being on April 23rd. And on August the 5th, he'd be traded to the Phillies for Dave Schneck. So, the immortal Dave Schneck. The immortal Dave Schneck. We get to the end of April 1975. The Reds are in second place three and a half games back. By May 2nd, they're just 12 and 12 and four games behind Los Angeles. So things aren't going very well at this point, but something big is about to happen. Tell us about it. Well, it's going to be what we, you know, the, the fourth finger of the four, you know, the fourth point of the four things that, that made the big red machine. As you said, the Reds were kind of just puttering along they were grinding they were 12 and 12 they were four games behind the Dodgers and and I think Sparky was worried about the season getting away from him and so on on May the 2nd they're getting ready to play the Braves Sparky says to Pete he sees Pete fooling around in the infield and and Sparky says to Pete he said boy I wish you could play over there at third base and and they go back and forth a little bit and, and Pete says well I'll try it well, Sparky decided that, decided what he wanted to do. He wanted Pete to do it the next day. And this must, this was a Friday night game. So he wanted Pete to do it the next day on the NBC game of the week. Now, for those of you that are, that are younger than I am, back then we didn't get baseball every day. You didn't get your home team. You didn't get, I mean, you, you listen to the Reds on the radio and you got about 12 or 15 games or maybe a little more on TV. And there was one national televised game every week on Saturday afternoon. And this week, the Reds were going to be on, sat on on the game of the week on NBC, and that's when he wanted to throw Rose out there at third base because he knew that Pete would want to rise to the occasion. 
and he loved the big stage. So the only way, the only thing Pete said was he asked for George Sugar to be at the stadium at ten o'clock to hitting ground balls. George Sugar, obviously the uh, assistant coach for the Reds. Now Sparky didn't tell Bob Housem about this. And I thought it was funny. Uh, Bob Hausman was out of town at the time, so he saw it in the box score the following day and thought it was a mistake. When he heard, his comment was, oh, my God, <laughs> Shirley Sparky didn't do something so crazy. But on May the 3rd, he did, Sparky did do something so crazy, and Pete Rose started. And as you said, he rose to the challenge. Yeah, they, 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 you know, they talked about later that, that you know, in retrospect, that Pete loved this challenge of, of being stuck, getting put in, an, in a gold glove infield with Bench and Concepcion and Morgan. You know, he, he liked the fact that he had a, he wasn't as talented as these guys were defensively, and he was a grinder. So they get up, and they're playing the Braves, and the leadoff hitter is a guy named Ralph Gar. And Gar was a good hitter. He, he either won the batting title that year or had won it the year before. I can't remember which. But he was a guy that could really hit. Uh, he won the batting title in 74, thank you, and he, and he could really, really run. Fast guy. Leadoff hitter. Hits a screamer to Rose's left. Rose stumbles fields the ball, falls down, gets up, and throws him out. And Marty said on the radio that he looked like a monkey playing with a football, but he threw him out. I love that Marty Brenneman quote. That's that's perfect. And the Reds would win the game, 6-1. to one. Gary Nolan threw a complete game. And the lineup was uh, interesting. In addition to Pete Rose being put at third, Dave Concepcion was moved to the two spot. Joe Morgan moved to the number three hole. And uh, now Griffey was out that day with a slight injury, so Foster played right field and batted eighth versus uh, right-handed pitching. Now, you talk about this was the final move, and you've been tracking these throughout this series, Bill, in the creation of the Big Red Machine, sort of the four huge points that built the machine. Recap those for us. Yeah, and, and we've talked about these through the episodes. The first one we talked about in 69, and I think we covered it in 71 also, was the, the, the history of Bob, how Bob Housem got to Cincinnati and the, the hiring after the 69 season of Sparky, the trade before the 72 season of, that brought Joe Morgan and Cesar Geronimo, Jack Billingham, and Ed Armbrister to the Reds. And this was the final piece of the puzzle, really, of the move of Pete Rose from the outfield to third base which, when it was made, Sparky talked about getting Dreesen more at-bats, getting Foster more at-bats. But what would end up happening, and we'll talk about a little bit about the, more about this in a minute, is, is it would become Foster's place in left field, and he would blossom, and the offense of the big red machine would really take off. Not at first. We moved to May 7th, though. Johnny Bench hit a grand slam that day. And, and Bill, you noticed Joe Morgan's line in the box score, and it is uh, amazing to look at. For me, this is May 7th, 1975. Joe Morgan, 0 for 0. He had four plate appearances, 0 for 0, four walks, and three runs scored. That's classic Joe Morgan there. He did get caught, and he got caught stealing that day, or he probably would have scored four runs. <laughs> you're right. You're right. <laughs> oh, Joe Morgan. I love it. So now, May the 10th, Sparky puts uh, King Griffey in the two hole, and that was the first time that the, what we call the Great Eight started together right yeah it was the grade eight was he juggled the lineup through may and june foster was really hitting seventh or eighth at that time and he ended up moving foster up in the lineup in early july and and for those that have never heard the, the grade eight numbers or if you haven't heard them in a long time they're, they're kind of mind-boggling in, in 75 the grade eight played together only 24 times in the regular season and they went 19 and 5 in 70 regular season games and 17 postseason games is all they played together in 75 and 76. A total of 87 games in two years. They went 69 and 18 with a winning percentage of 793. But when you think of the grade eight, you know, you think, well, Sparky just threw those eight guys out there, you know, 150 games a year. Not so. Not so at all. And I don't know if it shows how Sparky was a genius at mixing and matching lineups, but in the postseason, when he had to go to his grade eight, they obviously were dominant. Now, I said there were some growing pains, and the results were not instantaneous. And from May 11th to 16th of 1975, the Reds lose six games in a row. And at this point now, they're in third place in the National League's Western Division, five and a half games back, and they're, they're 18 and 19. They're under 500, and only six and seven over two weeks uh, after uh, moving Rose to third base. And Anderson was beginning to have some second thoughts about Pete Rose at third base, wondering if maybe they're giving away too much defense. 
He'd gone back and forth from Dreesen to Vukovic to Rose. Now, things are about to get a lot better. And I want you to talk about, if you would, Bill, May 17th, because there are so many of these great individual stories. We've already had a couple of them. Here's a third one. Um, Johnny Mitch had the flu that day, right? He had the Budweiser flu. <laughs> He, he and he and Marty, and this is this will this is one of the turning points I think in Marty Brenneman's career. Also, you got to remember, you know, he, he these were young guys, and Marty was a young guy at the time, and, and he was kind of in with the players at the time. And and he and Bench had gone out the night before and overindulged, and Marty mistakenly, and I, I'm assuming during the pregame show, mentions to Sparky that they'd been out and you know had tearing it up and having a good time. And well, Bench at the time was in the training room talking about how sick he was and that he had the flu. Well, Sparky went in and had a discussion with Mr. Bench. My guess is at the top of his lungs. And he told Bench he was playing if he had to play 20 innings and he didn't care if his fever was 200 degrees. Well, it's turned out, it, it, it turned out well that Bench did play for the Red, did play that day. It did turn out well because the Reds won on 10th inning home runs by Ken Griffey and Johnny Bench, and the Reds would, from that point forward, take off. They win 40 of their next 50 games. They go from 5.5 games behind to 12.5 in front, and essentially the National League West division race was over by the All-Star break. Uh, it, and it's, it's kind of startling. May 31st, the last day of May, the Reds were a half game back. June 30th, the last day of June, they were seven games up. That's just that's an insane run and really speaks to the talent on this team. Runs like that are, are, are just you, you've got to be a dynasty or, a, you know, a, a team for the ages to, to win like 40 or 50 is crazy, much less a 17 or 18 game swing in the standings in that time. It, it also means the other team must not have been playing real well at the time, though. That's true. They caught the maybe caught the Dodgers at the right time. Now, June 16th, a rough point for the Reds because Don Gullett was hit by a line drive and broke his thumb. He would miss two months of action, but as we would see later, he does return. Freddie Norman had been in and out of the rotation at this point, then he comes back into the rotation to replace Gullett and uh, does incredibly well, 9-1 and one over the final half of the season. His ERA in the first half was 4.48, and in the second half, 3.01, so they didn't lose a step with Freddie Norman until Don Gullett could get back. He got hit in the ninth inning. It, it, it was, it was, he had two outs in the ninth when he got hit by the line drive. How's that for luck? <laughs> Almost made his way through. Yep. Almost. Now, the Reds had a number of participants in the All-Star game in that year's Midsummer Classic. Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, Johnny Bench, Tony Perez, and Dave Concepcion. They combined for five hits and 15 at-bats in a 6-3 to three National League win. On July 30th, Pat Darcy became the first Reds pitcher in 45 games to throw a complete game. That doesn't seem like a crazy thing today. If you have one each every 45 games nowadays, it's it's amazing. But back then, that was an example of where Sparky was really ahead of all of baseball in his use of relief pitchers. Uh, he was obviously called Captain Hook because he pulled his pitcher so early. At the time, that was pretty revolutionary, wasn't it, Bill? Yeah, it was very revolutionary. There was there, there was a period. I mean, at this point. Teams were averaging quite, and I don't, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but way more complete games than saves, and that number would flip over time, and the Reds would would be in front of the curve as that flips. Now the Reds have taken over the division, and why don't you just run us through the highlights of the remainder of the regular season, Bill? Well, one of the big highlights for for Cincinnati fans was uh, Pete Rose collecting his twenty five hundredth hit with a single off Bruce Keeson on August the seventeenth. Uh, Bruce Keeson, the pitcher for the Pirates. On September the 3rd, it's always good to beat up on the Dodgers. So in the fourth inning of a game against the Dodgers on September the 3rd, off Andy Messerschmidt and Charlie Huff, the Reds scored 10 runs with two outs. Four, They got four walks. They got a hit by a pitch. They hit three doubles and four singles and route to a 13-2 win. And Perez was the only Red that day with less than one hit. That's a pretty good day. And that, any day you beat the Dodgers is a good day. Absolutely. And on September 7th, the Reds made it official with a 20-and-a-half game lead. The Reds clinched the National League West. Earliest day in National League history that a team had clinched. So the Reds again back in the playoffs, but those questions have to be lingering at this point. 
The Reds would face the Pittsburgh Pirates. And, Bill, tell us a little bit about the Pirates because this was not a, a sure thing that the Reds could beat this team. This was a really good team at that time. Yeah, they were. They, they, they were managed by Danny Murtaugh, who had been a longtime manager, and he had multiple tenures with the Pirates. They'd won the National League East uh, over the Phillies. They'd taken the division lead in, in early June, but the Phillies came back and got to within like a half a game in, 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 by mid-August. But the Pirates went 17-11 and 11 in September, and they won their division by six and a half games. And, and this was a really good offensive Pirates team. They had led the National League in home runs. They had Willie Stargell, who ended up a future Hall of Famer. But their best offensive player was a 24-year-old kid that the, we talked about earlier that the Reds missed out on, Dave Parker, a local Cincinnati guy. The Reds didn't, had passed on him. you know. And that year, Parker finished third in the MVP race. But the Pirates had a bunch of hitters. They had Rennie Stennett, they had Manny Sanguian, they had Richie Zisk and Al Oliver. And on the mound, Jerry Royce, a left-hander, had won 18 games for him. Jimmy Rooker had won 13 with a 2.95 ERA. And their bullpen, they still had Dave Justy and Kent Tocolvi down there. So a pretty good uh, opposition. And I'll, I'll tell you, I have uh, a friend who's actually the grandson of Pirates manager Danny Murtal. And he is convinced that if the Pirates had been able to beat the Reds in one of these series in the 70s, that Murtaugh would actually be in the Hall of Fame now as a manager. He thinks, he blames the Reds for uh, him not being in the in the Hall of Fame. He did have a great career, won a lot of games for the Pirates. So let's get to th- this series against the Reds. Game one, Jerry Royce versus Don Gullett, who is uh, back, obviously. And Sparky's moved Joe Morgan back to the number two spot. And uh, Griffey is at the seventh spot in the lineup. And in the third inning, King Griffey gets a two-run double to give the Reds a 4-2 to two lead. In the fifth, with bases loaded, Griffey gets an RBI on a ground out. Cesar Geronimo, sacrifice fly. And then Don Gullett, a two-run home run. He, he never hit a regular season home run. He returns and hits a two-run home run to give the Reds an 8-2 to two lead. They would ultimately win 8-3. to three. So, in addition to the two-run homer, he did a little bit of pitching as well. A complete game. Drove in uh, three runs on the day. Joe Morgan actually stole uh, three bases that game as well. So, the Reds take a dominating one to nothing lead going into game two of the series. Tell us about game two. Well, game two was, was uh, Norman against Jim Rooker. In the first inning, Perez takes him deep for a two-run homer. In the fourth... Griffey singles in Foster and a sacrifice fly by Freddie Norman, and, and the Reds are up 4-1. to one. The Reds end up winning 6-1. to one. Perez went 3-4 for four on the day with three RBIs. Griffey stole three bases. The Reds stole seven total, and they used to run wild on Manny Sanguin. Three innings of one hit, no run relief out of Raleigh Eastwick out of the bullpen, and he got a save. And Freddie Norman pitched, gave him six innings and one run baseball. And the Reds are up 2 to nothing going to game three. Game three is Gary Nolan facing off against John Candelaria. In the bottom of the ninth in that game, the Reds are up 3-2. to two. Concepcion hit a home run in the second. Piroz hit a two-run homer in the eighth. Raleigh Eastwick comes in. There's already a runner on base. Gives up a single and then two walks, including walking in the tying run. But then he gets Rennie Stennett to fly out to center field. We go to extra innings. In the tenth, Ken Griffey scored on an Ed Armbrister sacrifice fly. Joe Morgan doubled in Pete Rose. The Reds lead 5-3. to three. Pedro Bourbon goes to the bottom half, retires the Pirates 1-2-3, and the Cincinnati Reds are back in the World Series again for the third time in five seasons. Bill, wrap up the uh, National Championship Series before we move on to the World Series. Well, Concepcion had a really good series. He went 5-for-11, a 1.227 OPS, and he hit a home run. Perez had an OPS of 1.128. He went 5-for-12 with a home run and four RBIs. And as I said a few minutes ago, the Reds kind of ran wild on Manny Sanguin. Morgan had four stolen bases, and Griffey had three in three games. The pitching, everybody pitched really well. The only guy with an ERA above three was McEnany, and he gave up a run in an inning and a third. So the, the Reds kind of dominated the Pirates in this three-game series. And they would move on to face the Boston Red Sox in the World Series. Boston winners of the American League East. They had taken the division lead in late May. Stayed close through June, but a 22-11 and 11 July allowed them to stretch that lead out to 9.5 by early August. From there, they cruised to the division title, won it by 4.5 over the Orioles. 
They won 95 games and defeated the three-time defending world champs Oakland A's in a 3 to nothing sweep in the American League. So two teams coming in riding kind of high. What can you tell us about the Boston Red Sox, Bill? Well, they were, you know, they were definitely underdogs going into the series, but man, they had some good players. Freddie Lynn, who was 23 years old, he won the MVP that year. He was a rookie. They had Dwight Evans. They had future Hall of Famer Carlton Fisk. Now, they would be short because their other star rookie, a future Hall of Famer Jimmy Rice had gotten hurt, but they had future Hall of Famer Carl Yaskremski and ex-Red Bernie Carbo was now a Boston Red Sox. And on the, on the, on the mound, they had three pitchers who won 17 games or more. Uh, Luis, uh, Rick Wise had won 19 for him. Remember Rick Wise from a no-hitter, two-home run game against the Reds. Louis Tiant won 18, and Spaceman Bill Lee had won 17. And you were a senior in high school this time, so I'm sure you remember this uh, series very well. I really, really do. Um, and and I'll, I'll talk more about it when we get to the game six and seven, but I, I vividly remember this World Series. I, I mean, I remember every game. Game one, Don Gullett versus Louis Tiant. The game was tied 0-0 zero to zero through six and a half innings, but the Red Sox went off against Don Gullett, scored six off Gullett, then ultimately Clay Carroll and Will McEnany. Um, the rally was started with a single by Louis Tiant, the opposite pitcher. Tiant threw a six-game, uh, Tiant threw a complete game, five-hit shutout. The Red Sox win six to nothing, and again, you have to think, all those questions, can the Reds get it done? Here they get blown out in game one, and you have to start wondering still, can they get the monkey off their back? Tell us about game two, Bill. Oh, and, and you're right. And, and they look terrible in game one doing it. I mean, Tion just completely destroyed them. I mean, he, he just, they were at his mercy all day in game one. So we go to game two at Fenway, and the, me- and the weather is just miserable. It's cold and rainy and overcast and blah, blah, blah. And they come out, and it's 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 Jack Billingham against Spaceman Bill Lee. First thing they do is they get a run on three hits off of Billingham in the first. And as we as we find out, as we know historically, you don't get you don't hit Billingham in in the World Series or the playoffs. Bill Lee turned around. He retired the first ten Reds before he walked Morgan in the fourth. Bench sent uh, Morgan to third on a single, and then Perez drove him in with a fielder's choice. So it was one-to-one from there. In the bottom of the sixth, with one out, Yaskremski singled. Then Carlton Fisk got on via the Concepcion air, so he got runners on first and second. Rico Petroselli drove in Yaskremski with a single. Billingham walked Darrell Evans. Sparky decided to make a change, and he brought in Bourbon for Billingham. And he got uh, Rick Burleson. So it was two-to-one Boston, and it stayed that way into the ninth inning. So we go to the top of the ninth. Down two to one. Bench doubles off of, Rick, off of Bill Lee. The Red Sox make a move, and they pull Lee for Dick Drago. Drago gets Perez and Foster. So the Reds are down to their last out, and Davey Concepcion at the plate. Now, they're in danger of being down two to nothing in the series. you got to remember, the Reds had lost the first two games in both the 1970 and the 72 World Series. Yeah, so this is a real inflection point here when you talk about this uh, narrative that we've been trying to 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 cover throughout the years that the Reds looked like a team that couldn't get over the hump. All of a sudden, they're about to be down two to nothing for the third time in five World Series. They lost the two previous ones to the Baltimore and Oakland. Now, in danger of losing, being down two to nothing to the Boston Red Sox as well. Do they go down two nothing? Well, no. They get a big infield single from Davy Concepcion, which scores bench and ties the game at two. Then Concepcion steals second. Again, this, the red speed and, and, and that they've you know they've been talking about for for the last few years that they've really been you know emphasizing. Griffey doubles him in, and the Reds lead three to two, going to the bottom of the ninth. And Sparky goes; he decides he's going to let Raleigh Eastwick go back out in the bottom of the ninth, and he retires Rick Burleson, Bernie Carbo, and Cecil Cooper, who will end up being a you know famous for being a Milwaukee Brewer. A few years later, he had a Cooper had a really good seventy-five, but the poor guy had a terrible World Series. He went one for nineteen, and he made the last out of this game, and the Reds win, and the series is tied one to one. And Cooper's kind of a funny story because in December seventy-six, when he's traded from Boston to Milwaukee, one of the guys that would come back with him would be Bernie Carbo. 
All right, so the Reds have won. They tied the series at 1-1, one one, coming back to Riverfront. Now maybe a little bit of momentum. They would face Rick Wise, Gary Nolan for the Reds. Rick Wise, of course, as Bill mentioned a moment ago, he's, and we talked about it in the 1971 episode, had thrown a no-hitter and hit two home runs at Riverfront. In the second inning, Carlton Fisk hits a home run. I don't think that's the last home run he's going to hit in this series. Gives Boston a one to nothing lead. Johnny Bench in the fourth gets the Reds' first hit. It was a two-run home run to give the Reds a two-to-one lead. And then in the fifth, Dave Concepcion and Cesar Geronimo lead off the inning with back-to-back home runs. Reds end up adding another that inning, and after five innings, the Reds are up five to one. In the seventh, with the Reds up five to two at that point, Bernie Carbo hits a pinch hit home run off Clay Carroll. So it's five to three at that point. And then in the ninth. Off Raleigh Eastwick, Dwight Evans hits a two-run homer, ties the score at five. So we go to extra innings. In the bottom of the 10th, the game is tied. Cesar Geronimo leads off with a single. And Bill, tell us about this play because this is, I think, probably little known amongst fans today. But this is the Ed Armbrister moment that we teased a few uh, episodes ago that has a huge effect on this series. Can you tell us about that? Well, let's talk about Armbruster for just a second before we get to that. He was kind of the throw-in guy on, on the big trade in 72, and he really never played much for the Reds. Um, he had an OPS plus of 26 and 75. He was a you know a guy that would pinch run, and they'd probably play him a little bit defensively in the outfield. He didn't, you know, he didn't really play much. So Sparky sends him up with Geronimo on first. To, and basically his job is just to bunt Geronimo over. So Armbruster gets the bunt down, and he hesitates. He looked like he was doing a little dance there. Fisk is trying to get out from behind the plate, and he's trying not to hit Armbruster. Armbruster's trying not to hit Fisk, and they get all tangled up. Fisk picks, has the ball in his hand, and as Geronimo goes sliding into second, Fisk throws the ball into center field. Geronimo gets up, goes to third. So now we got runners on first and third, and they walk Rose to load the bases. And they bring up Joe Morgan, and Morgan drives in the winning run with a single, and the Reds lead the series two to one. But if you've never seen this play, and believe me, the, and it, it, I think you could you could you could have made the call either way, I think. But you, this play is on YouTube. Just look up Arm Barrister Bunt '75 World Series, and it'll come up. And see what you think. See what you think the call should have been. But it's a it's a, a play that changed Reds history. It is the bang bang play that Red Sox fans will talk about to this day as being uh, one of the reasons why they should have been the champions in '75. Game four, Bill. Uh, again, the Reds uh, jump out to a lead, but unable to hold it. Right? Yeah, Freddie Norman and, and Pedro Borbone did not have good days. The Reds jumped out to a two to nothing lead off a of Tiant, but Boston comes out with five runs in the fourth off of Norman and Borbone. The Reds scored two in the fourth, so it's five to four, but that's the way the game ended, and Boston ties the series at 2-2. Tiant throws his second complete game win, but in this game, he was constantly in trouble. I remember this. I mean, he was all over the place. He he gave up nine hits and four walks. He threw 163 pitches in this game. Wow. The Reds had the tying run on in the fifth, sixth, and seventh and just couldn't get the run in. So we're tied up two games to two as they go to the Final game of the season at Riverfront Stadium, Don Gullett versus Reggie Cleveland. In the second inning, Tony Perez, he makes his 15th consecutive out in the World Series. Not a good start for Tony Perez, but he will figure He will figure later in this series. In the fourth inning, down one to nothing, Tony Perez does homer to tie the game. In the fifth inning, Pete Rose doubles in Don Gullett to give the Reds a 2-1 to lead. And in the sixth... Tony Perez hits a three-run homer. Five to one Reds. They end up winning eight. Or the Reds end up winning six to two. Don Gullett threw eight and two-thirds innings, only gave up two runs. Had a two-hitter going into the ninth, but gave up a couple singles and a double uh, with two outs. And Sparky brought in Raleigh Eastwick to get the final out. So the Reds take a three to two lead. They have one game away from that elusive World Championship, and we move back to Boston with all the anticipation of this. It takes a little while to get that game six started, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. It was it rained for three days in Boston, and it was apparently miserable. And originally, the, the, the two starters for game six were supposed to be Billingham for the Reds and, and, and Spaceman Bill Lee for, for Boston. 
But with the three days of bad weather, Boston could go back to Louis Tiant. And Sparky decided to bypass Billingham and go to Jack or to Gary Nolan in Game 6. Now, Game 6, many claim, is the greatest uh, World Series game ever played, maybe the greatest game ever played. And you have a particular memory of, uh, of that game, right? Well, yeah. It, it, at this point, it was the fall of my senior year of high school, and, and we I was with a group, and we were counseling at a camp for underprivileged kids. We got to go get off school and go do this. So, you know, who wouldn't want to get off school and go camp? And the night of the, the game six, the, uh, the people running the camp really hadn't made any preparation or any acknowledgement of the world series. So we got all the kids in bed and asleep and the counselors all met in one of the cabins that was empty with our little transistor radio and listened to game six hunched over this transistor radio in this in this in this cabin uh, for game six they game seven is a little different I'll talk about that when we get there um, spoiler alert there will be a game seven <laughs> my, my memories of, of the end of the 75 World Series are, are tied in with this counseling of, of kids at this camp and and it's a wonderful memory for me well how wonderful was game six well, uh, everyone has said over the years it was great. Didn't start out great for the good guys as Boston jumped out to a 3-0 lead on a three-run homer by Fred Lynn. I'll let you pick up the description of Game 6 at that point, Bill. Well, in the third, Sparky uh, pinch hits for Nolan, and he brings in Fred Norman, and he doesn't even get out of the third, and they bring in they bring in Billingham. But it's still 3 to nothing. The Reds tie it up in the top of the fifth uh, two, on a two-run triple by Ken Griffey with a, and followed by a single by Bench. And then in the seventh, the Reds go up by two on a two-run double by George Foster, and they extend that lead to three, up six to three, on a home run by Geronimo. So things are looking pretty good for the Reds at this point. Yeah, we're seventh inning, and the Reds are three runs ahead and only a, you know, a few outs away from a world championship, their first since 1940. What happened then? Well, Pedro Bourbon, who, who had pitched a scoreless sixth and seventh, uh, Sparky sent him back out in the eighth, and he gives up a single and a walk to lead off the eighth inning. So Sparky goes out and gets him and brings in Raleigh Eastwick. And Raleigh Eastwick gets Evans and Burleson. Well, Boston sends up Carbo. Sparky is considering going to McEnany, but he's afraid that if he went to McEnany, Daryl Johnson, the manager of the Red Sox, would bring in the right-hander Juan Beniquez. And Sparky was afraid that Beniquez would bounce one off the green monster. So Eastwick gets ahead one and two on Beniqua, or on, on Carbo. And at this point, Sparky again thinks, well, I'm, I should go out and get him. You know, if I bring in the left-hander now, if I bring in McEnany now, Johnson isn't going to change batters with two strikes. So Sparky gets to the top step of the dugout, and for whatever reason, he, he doesn't make the change. He doesn't go out. The count goes to 2-2, and Carbo's swings had been awful on this at-bat. But he takes the next pitch and hits it in the right center field stands, stands and the game's tied. Sparky later said this, this to him was just like when he didn't reposition Concepcion in the ninth inning of game four in the 72 series. He felt that a decision he didn't make cost his team a game and possibly the World Series. In the ninth inning, Boston did load the bases with no outs on a walk to uh, Doyle, a single by Yastrzemski, and an initial walk to Fisk, and that brought Fred Lynn to the plate. Now, this was a really, really interesting play, and it's one that if you've not seen this game again, you need to try to go watch this game because this was a point where you're like, no, 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 no. Tell us about how, what happened there. Well, as you said, Freddie Lynn comes up to the plate, and, and they cross bench up on a pitch, and Lynn hits a high fly ball, but it's short to left field. And George Foster goes over, and he's right next to the stands when he catches the ball, and and. Denny Doyle was on third base, and the third base coach for the Red Sox was a Cincinnati guy who went to my high school named Donnie Zimmer, who later, you know, he managed all over the place, and he was coaching third base. Well, Doyle thought he heard Zimmer say, go, 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 when actually Zimmer was saying, no, no, no. He takes off, and Foster throws a one-bounce strike, and bench tags Doyle at the plate. The Reds have a double play, and they're out of the inning. It's a, it's a play where you wonder if- – Foster should have 
as the ball's in the air, if you're a Reds fan, you're probably thinking, does Foster need to catch this ball? Because, you know, this is the bottom of the ninth. There's no outs. And uh, if, if if it's not far enough to where he can tag up, where Doyle can tag up from third, then maybe you're giving up the, the winning run by catching that ball. Instead, he throws the strike. The Reds get a double play, and we go to extra innings. In the 11th inning, one out. King Griffey's on first. Joe Morgan hits a ball that looked like it was destined for the right field bleachers. Now, it may not have actually made it to the right field bleachers. It's close. Uh, but Dwight Evans makes this incredible catch, just an absolutely stunning catch out there and doubles uh, King Griffey off first base. Uh, and, and, Bill, you, you said to, earlier you didn't think it would be a home run, but it might have been just as good as a home run, right? Yeah, if that ball gets over gets over Evans' head, there's there's no way that he keeps it from bouncing past him coming back. And with Griffey's speed, he, there's no doubt he would have scored from first base. Uh, but it, it, this is another one of those plays that if you haven't seen it, do Evans' six-game World Series catch, and you'll see it. And it's it's an incredible catch. It really is. In the 12th inning, Pat Darcy's back out for the Reds, starting his third inning of work. Now, the Reds had used eight pitchers in this game, Captain Hook. The Red Sox only used four. And uh, I guess we all have seen a million times what happened at that point, right? I hate that picture. <laughs> Carlton Fisk hits the home run, and he's trying to wave it fair. You've all seen it a million times. It is a game-winning walk-off home run, and the series is tied 3-3. Three to three. And what kind of a gut punch is this for the Reds at that point, Bill? If we can sort of stop at that moment in time. You're a few outs away from winning the World Series. Sparky doesn't make the change. They end up giving up the home run. They end up losing an extra innings on another home run. And the series is tied, and you got to still play Game Seven at Fenway. Tell me what uh, what it was the feeling was like at that time, if you can. Well, it's funny because you know if you if you read what Sparky was thinking, I mean, he was gloom and doom and and, and down, you know down in the dumps, and, and Pete Rose was the guy that told him he said, "Sparky, don't worry about it. We got tomorrow. We're going to get him tomorrow." And, he, and and Pete apparently had no concerns at all about losing this ball game. And there's all the stories about Rose, even while the game six was going on, he's telling the guys on the other time, isn't this a great game? Man, this is a super game. Well, you know, they're great games, but they're not as great when you lose. It is, but, fun, it is fun to watch, but yes, the fact, in retrospect, because you can appreciate how, knowing how the series ended, you can appreciate how that game was just back and forth. And it was an exciting game with great plays by both teams. But yeah, at the time, I'm not sure how Pete had that, uh, how he felt that way. So, game seven? Spaceman Bill Lee against Donnie Gullett. Now, where were you listening to this game or uh, or watching this game, Bill? Well, in this by by after Game Six, the 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 powers that be at this camp that I was counseling, they they had gotten a hold of a television from somewhere, and if I I I want to say it was a black and white, but I, I may be misremembering that. But we got to go up to the dining hall after we got the kids all asleep, and all the counselors watched the game in the dining hall that night. So we weren't all crowded in an empty uh, cabin listening to a transistor radio. I love it. So tell us what happens in Game 7. So in a, a game's nothing and nothing. We go to the bottom of the third, and, and, Gill- and Gullet kind of loses his mind there for a, a minute. Gives up two hits and four walks, including walking in two runs, and the, and the Pirates score – or the Pirates. The Red Sox scored three and go up three to nothing in the, in the bottom of the third. And it's that way till the top of the sixth when Rose singles and bench hits what looks like a double play ball. But Rose went barreling into Doyle at second base and made him rush his throw and he throws you know, off the bag and bench is safe at first. The next point was something that another one of these that if you haven't seen it, go to YouTube and check it out, right? Yeah, absolutely. Bill Lee is going to pitch to Tony Perez. Now in game two, Lee had thrown this blooper pitch of his to Perez and he'd swung and missed it badly and, and, and looked bad doing it. Not that you could look good swinging, missing at a blooper pitch. And the, but, it, to describe a blooper pitch, just a high arcing, like a softball, a slow pitch softball pitch, really more than anything. Yeah. It, it, that's a good description of it. But Perez, you know, said later that he thought he might see it again. Well, Lee threw it again and Perez hit it out into the, the street. He hit it out of the ballpark, of the left center field, over the screen. Reds are back in the game. They're only down 3-2. to two. In the seventh inning, 
Pete Rose drives in Ken Griffey. That ties the game at three. And so we go to the ninth in game seven of the World Series, all knotted up at three. Tell us what happens in the ninth inning, Bill. Well, Griffey walks. He gets bunted to second. And a ground out sends him to third. Rose walks. So you got first and third with two outs. And who do you want? You know, if you could pick anybody in the world you'd want coming to the plate right then, I think you'd want the guy at that time that was the best player in baseball. A little guy named Joe Morgan comes Absolutely, up. Absolutely, yes. And Morgan just does, he doesn't get a lot of it, but he gets enough of it. And he dumps a base hit into left center field, and Griffey scores. And Will McEnany retires the Red Sox in order in the ninth, and the Reds finally get over the hump. They are the champions of baseball. In Game 7, that bullpen of Jack Billingham, Clay Carroll, Will McEnany threw five shutout, one-hit innings of baseball to win this thing uh, after the dramatic loss in Game 6, after losing two World Series in the previous five years. Finally, the Reds get over the hump. And tell us a little bit more, just to kind of wrap up that World Series, Bill, and what it meant to you as well as a, as a Reds fan, not just what uh, happened on the field. Well, I mean, it was it was Nirvana. I mean, you'd been so close in '72. I mean, '70 you were just kind of happy to be there. '72 you really felt like you should have won. You 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 really believed that we had the better team. '73 was such a disappointment, but you ran into really really good pitching in New York. 74, the Dodgers were just a better team that year. So here you come into 75, and finally your dreams are realized. And, and you feel like you're, you know, you've suffered as much as the team has to get there. And, and you have to remember in this World Series, all four games the Reds won, they came from behind. Uh, the MVP of the World Series was Pete Rose. He, he had a 966 OPS, the slide in, in uh, game seven where he took out Doyle, which kept from the double play, was a huge play. Geronimo was another guy who had a really good World Series. He had, he had an OPS of 957, hit two home runs. So you could have made the argument for Geronimo also. Jack Billingham had a great World Series through nine innings, gave up two runs, only one of them was earned. And so did uh, Raleigh Eastwick and Will McEnany. So the Cincinnati Reds, world champions of baseball, 108 wins and 54 losses in the regular season. Just a completely dominant season. Attendance 2.3 million, a little over 2.3 million, second highest attendance in all of baseball just to the hated Dodgers. The Reds had winning streaks of 10, of 9, twice they had a winning streak of 7, and really something that tells you about this team, they were never out of it. The Reds won 28 games that season in their final at-bat. Is that as amazing to you as it is to me, Bill, to think about? 28 games. It is to me, and I wonder if they've ever had another season was anywhere close to that. And one thing you had noted, Bill, was that the Reds did win 108 games, but, you know, they rested their starters most of September and still were able to do that. Another amazing, amazing thing. Yeah, and they went 20-9 and nine in September without playing all their regulars. It's not bad. Joe Morgan, the most valuable player in 1975, and, and well-deserved. You mentioned best player in baseball, Joe Morgan. Uh, 327 batting average, 466 on base. He had 17 home runs. He stole 67 bases, drove in 94, was uh, just a incredible defense. You you will not find more of an all-around player than Joe Morgan in 1975. As far as I'm concerned, I, that's right up there with one of the best seasons of anyone in the history of baseball, just with what he was able to bring to the Reds. 466 on base and a 508 slugging. <laughs> for Again, for the little guy. Yeah, a little second baseman. Yeah, hit the ball hard. He had no weaknesses in his game. Absolutely no weaknesses. Now, can you tell me how Sparky Anderson, he did not win Manager of the Year this year. He never won Manager of the Year while with the Reds. How is that even possible? I don't know. I I don't know how he didn't win. You would have thought, if nothing else, he would have won it in 1970. How he didn't win it in 75, I mean, you're kind of, at that point, you're kind of established. And and I think there's a lot of politics of Manager of the Year award anyway. I mean, he did win two in Detroit. But how he never won one for the Reds, hell, you you could make the argument that he should have won one in 78 the year he got fired. Right, right. Uh, more on that in a couple of episodes. Gold gloves, uh, Johnny Bench, Joe Morgan, Dave Concepcion, Cesar Geronimo all won gold gloves that year. Now, Bill, how do you, how do you kind of wrap up the season? It was just as dominant a season as as 
probably you had seen in your lifetime to that point, I guess. Oh, absolutely. And, and with the best finish. And so the Reds, how do they, what are they going to do? How do they top that? At this point, you got to wonder, what are they going to do for an encore? Thank you for listening to Building the Machine, a brand new podcast series from Red Leg Nation Radio. To get each episode of the show delivered to you automatically, subscribe to Red Leg Nation Radio. You can find us at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, essentially wherever you find podcasts, we're there. Many of the facts, figures, and anecdotes for today's episode come from BaseballReference.com and the book's Red Leg Journal by Greg Rhodes and John Snyder and Big Red Dynasty by Greg Rhodes and John Arardi. We'll be back next week with Episode 8. Back to back, Sugar Bear. Until next time, for Bill Lack, this is Chad Dotson saying, So long, everyone. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.